We're going to be in um, Acts chapter 17, if you have a Bible and want to turn there, um, or you can follow along. The same text is printed in the bulletin. Um, I think I'm sick. Um, I don't need your pity, but it's why I'm uh, not my usual highly affectionate self. I'm guessing most of you haven't noticed any difference at all. Um, But if I'm not shaking your hand, that's why. I don't feel bad. I just... Uh, and the temperature seems all funny. So anyway, that's why I'm not touching people. Um, Acts 17, uh, this whole book of Acts that we've been going through is about uh, Jesus's church carrying on the mission that he started when he was uh, here on earth. And so uh, they're moving into Europe with it now for the first time. Last week we looked, uh, they were in the city of Philippi in Greece, and now they're going to these two other cities in, in Greece, Europe for the first time. Um, talking about the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, everybody seems pretty well convinced that the world is broken, that it's not the way it's supposed to be. Surely every religion talks about something being wrong with the world and there being a solution to it. Um, most people will respond to a, a challenge to do something that is, it promises to change the world, even if it's not described how. You know, just the idea of doing something that would change the world is appealing to people on the face of it. But it depends kind of on what you think is wrong as to what kind of solution you think is needed. And in the Christian hope, what we think is wrong is that God's creation rebelled against him and broke his world that he made. It was good and we broke it so we uh, can't live long here as it is that we can't live without our environment being a threat to us. We can't get along with each other and we're not psychologically whole. We broke everything by our rebellion. And so now the world is upside down and it's corrosive and corrupting. And the fix for that problem is what Jesus came to do. Um, That is, he came to end our rebellion. He came to end our war with God to reconnect us and reconcile us to God, forgive us, bring us back home to God, and then to set the world back right side up, which is a project that he began and won't be completed until he returns uh, at the end of history. Right? That's our notion of um, what's wrong with the world and what can fix it, is that uh, Jesus himself came to our rescue. And so for us to be a part of trying to change the world, uh, to fix what's wrong with the world, is to be a part of his mission. That is to... Um, live out, but especially to speak about the good news of Jesus and what he's come to do for us. That's the church's mission. Now, um, when the apostles set out to do this and they went around the world, uh, the known world then, uh, speaking about the hope of Jesus, it caused a lot of trouble. They were accused in the passage, we're going to look at it, they're accused of turning the world upside down. Uh, we might want to say right side up, but how it felt to the people they were talking to is that they turned the world upside down, really upset the status quo, and created a lot of problems for themselves and the people that they spoke to. Um, and I want to talk today about why that's a good thing and why it's worth pursuing for us, just like it was for them. So let me pray for us, then we'll read the scripture together. Right. Father, please um, come and speak to us. We're here because we want to know you. And you know where we come from with uh, the different doubts that we have, uh, the relative warmth or indifference we have toward you, uh, the 
relative uh, comfort or pain that we feel in our lives right now. And we ask that wherever we are that you would come and speak to us. Uh, open our hearts to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, read with me, beginning at Acts 17, chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. It says, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Well, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I was back uh, with my family this week, and uh, most of them are from western North Carolina, East Tennessee, uh, the mountains. And um, that's probably shocking for you to hear. But um, mountain people are funny as southerners go. Like in the state of Tennessee... You know, there are kind of three sections. You've got western Tennessee with Memphis and middle Tennessee with Nashville and then eastern Tennessee with Knoxville and Chattanooga. And that bleeds over into North Carolina um, pretty smoothly. But they're very different uh, people. And you especially saw this back at the time of the war between the states because western and central Tennessee were uh, very much supportive of the Confederacy and secession. But... East Tennessee in the mountains in western North Carolina where they weren't really farmers because there wasn't much farmland and things and where they weren't dependent on a slave economy, uh, they were very uh, loyal, had a lot of union sentiment up in the mountains. So um, they were in a state that was part of the rebellion, but they were rebels against the rebellion, if you follow me. Rebels against the rebellion. Ed Stetzer says that this is an uh, analogy for the church's situation in the world. That we're in a world that's rebelled against God, and the church exists as rebels against the rebellion, which is kind of an odd place to be. 
But it means that the church's call and mission in the world is subversive. Right? That we are not here to support the status quo, but we are involved in Jesus' mission to set the world back right side up. And it winds up feeling like an insurgency, not, not a violent or secret insurgency, but an open insurgency that says we're not content with the way things are and we're pushing back against the corrosiveness and the corruption of the world that we live in. And so this is the mission that we have to be a part of what Jesus is doing to set the world back up, right side up. And so it means that we're pushed out into the world uh, in kind of a meddlesome way, that we're uh, not only running towards pain and brokenness to put the good news on display about what Jesus is fixing, but we're also speaking about the hope we have and the good news about what Jesus has done. And um, not just speaking to people to say that we've had a religious experience that we've found intriguing that they might share and find personally engaging. Um, not just giving a message of comfort and assurance that never bothers or troubles anybody or challenges anybody, which would be nice sometimes. But we go out with this announcement that the creator of the world has come to fix it and set it back right side up. And he's doing this through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's not always a welcome message, right? Because it's a disruptive message. If you accept that message, um, it will mess with your life to no end. Right? It will turn your life right side up. But if you're used to being upside down, right side up is disorienting and unpleasant. right? Uh, and it turns your world upside down if you follow him and find hope in him. So you got these two towns that heard this message, and they responded to it, some positively, some negatively. But we see in it kind of what our calling is to go speaking about the hope we have in Jesus and then uh, how to understand people's responses to Jesus. And we're going to look at it kind of under those two heads. You know, first, what it means for us to present this message that we've been given to present. So they go and they do the same thing. They always go in the synagogues first and talk to people who they, I think they think might be more open. And sometimes they are. But first town they go in um, is Thessalonica. And it says in verse 3 that the message Paul preached there was that the Messiah, the Christ, had to suffer. Now, that's, a, that's an odd part of the message to emphasize in some ways. But it was a huge problem for Jews who were trying to get their minds around the idea that Jesus might really be the Messiah. He might really be the one because he's crucified. And, you know, he's supposed to come and establish justice and peace in the world and rebuild the temple and make everything right. And instead he died. And it was very hard and still is hard for people who are uh, steeped in Judaism to, to understand how that could possibly be. You know, the Messiah has come, you say, but the world's still a mess. And so... Um, that's what he was telling them about. He was saying, like, probably the passage we read in Isaiah 53 today, that uh, Jesus had to suffer for our sake. By his wounds, we are healed. That um, the price had to be paid to cause justice for our rebellion, and Jesus paid it for us. Uh, as well, he could have talked all about the sacrificial system that was pointing to our need of a substitute. And, you know, the whole Old Testament really points this way. But it was surprising. So that's what he talked about with the Jews that we needed someone uh, to reconcile us to God. And that required him to suffer as a Messiah. But then as he talked, they talked to the uh, more of the Gentiles and um, the Roman citizens. They said that there's another king besides Caesar. And this was the really troubling news 
that they, they got in trouble for. They said they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And that wasn't a misunderstanding. <laughs> they really were acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying there's another king, Jesus. He's a rival king, and the Caesars were right to feel threatened by him, even though it's not a temporal uh, power that the Christians were after serving Jesus. It's still a problem for tyrants for Jesus to be on the throne. So that's what they taught. That was their message. That's a pretty basic Christian message, right? Jesus has come as the rightful king of the world to fix the world by sacrificing himself. It's interesting, though, to me to see how they spoke about this. Um, because mostly they just tried to persuade people. Right? Which is not always uh, what we assume is the way to go. But in verse 2 says that Paul went in and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them based on what they already knew and believed and appealed to them uh, to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And then in verse 3, he explained to them and proved to them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. So um, these are interesting words because in our day, we don't think of faith as something that's reasonable, um, something that can be explained, proved uh, or that we're persuaded of, it's more like a magical thing. It's uh, like hope or um, intuition or something like that. But it's very rational in the way they're appealing. He's not saying, you just got to take a blind leap of faith into the dark and just believe it and hope it's true, you know. Um, That's what I did, and it's given me a little warm feeling in my heart, and maybe you should do that too. He doesn't say that at all. He's persuading them. He's reasoning with them. He's giving them evidence. And it's not anti-intellectual, which also is the flavor of the way we think about faith in our day, right? We think of it like an app, a, uh, liking a certain kind of ice cream. It's just something that you happen to find appealing. Right? Your particular religious belief, we don't think of it as something that you've been persuaded is true in a way that makes what you used to believe false, right? But in the scripture, it's always talked about in a very intellectual way that you, you have to change your mind and put your faith in Jesus. You have to believe that these things are true, um, not just have a feeling about them. And so it's also not sentimental. But when we talk about our faith, we say, I feel, right? Well, I just feel that uh, Christianity is the right way and is helpful. And the uh, Bible doesn't talk that way. It says we're convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead and his claims are true. And if we were persuaded that that wasn't true, we wouldn't believe this anymore. We wouldn't keep fooling with the religion anymore. And that's a very different way of thinking. It's not just rational, though. Um, when Paul says in verse 3, he says we, we uh, tried to give them proofs and evidence. But also, um, he says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. It's a proclamation. There's authority in it. It's not like Paul's making up the message or just sharing his opinion. It's, it's a message that he's commissioned to give and he isn't free to change. So there's a proclamation in it as well. Uh, so he's not just saying this is what I happen to think. So in as much as that's still our job to do, it's one of the more uncomfortable parts of the Christian faith, I think. Um, I've seen so many people do it so badly and abrasively that... Don't really want to. When I think about our duty to uh, promote the faith and speak about the faith with our friends, you know, my mind runs kind of to the convention floor where all the booths are set up, and you're one of the uh, 
people with bated breath behind the table wanting people to stop at your booth so you can talk to them, and nobody wants to. You know, we have a we have a church convention every year with booths set up, and I, I realize there are things I want to stop and find out about, but because there's somebody standing there with that look on their face, I'd rather just not know and keep walking. Right? You know, I don't want to be pitched, and uh, I don't want to be somebody's statistic, and I don't want to pitch anybody or treat somebody like they're a statistic either or just somebody to be used for my, you know, religious merit badges or something like that. And so it's, it's, an, it's an awkward thing because it feels like, uh, feels manipulative or like you're using people. And it ought not to be that way. It wasn't. In this case, we have a letter that Paul wrote. This is around 50 A.D., a letter he wrote just after he left them. It's First Thessalonians, right? Because uh, he had to leave so quickly. He wrote this letter to them to encourage them. And in it, he talks about how he behaved with them. And he said, look, we didn't just share the message with you, but we shared our whole life with you because you were very dear to us. We love you. And that's the context for any kind of reasonable, helpful communication about the Christian faith is not to just use people as fodder for your religious exercise, but to genuinely love and care about people. And when you do, you're a lot less likely to be abrasive. And if you are abrasive, you can apologize. You know, I mean, if you really love people and care about them, it undermines a lot of the awkwardness we feel about um, speaking about the Christian faith. They also said, though, when they, uh, in that letter, he said, when we were with you, we were really careful not to, not to be manipulative and not to use flattery and not to uh, have our... Our preaching about Jesus be some pretext for greed to make a name or money for ourselves that we were careful not to be deceptive and careful not to speak out of error. In other words, they were um, extremely respectful to people as they spoke about the faith. And did this for a couple of reasons. One is because it's the right way to treat people, right? to be respectful of them when you speak. Um, but also... Um, they spoke respectfully and didn't manipulate people because they knew that only God can make a Christian. Like, tricks can't convert anybody because for someone to become a Christian it ultimately is a work of God. You know, he gives us new life. He gives us faith in his son. And you can't, you can't play manipulative music or uh, make propagandized arguments that can make that happen in somebody's life. So uh, being manipulative and deceptive doesn't make any sense for a Christian. Being coercive doesn't make any sense for a Christian because you can't coerce someone into the Christian faith. Um, only God can do that. So that's why we don't look for coercion when we speak with people about the faith. But it's also why Christians have always been the big friends of, of religious freedom and free speech. Because we figure... Um, in a free marketplace of ideas, the gospel will do really well. The gospel is the power of God. And if there's freedom to talk about it, um, that's a win for Christians. Right? We don't see any need to try to suppress what other people believe because in the free market of ideas, we think the gospel is going to do great. And so that's one reason Christians have always been behind movements of religious freedom or ought to have been behind them. A lot of talk these days about propaganda. Um, at least in my Twitter feed there is. And uh, it's not a pretty word, is it? 
propaganda. <laughs> it used to be a prettier word than it is now. It used to be kind of a neutral word, meaning to, to propagate an idea, right? The, the congregatio de propaganda fide. Sorry, Nick. Um, <laughs> God's never let me be a pastor where I knew more than the people in the church. I would love that, though. The, uh, my Latin, no good. Gregory the 15th in 1622, though, uh, uh, established a religious order for the promotion of the Christian faith. And it was for the propaganda fide, for the propaganda of the faith. Um, but we don't use it neutrally now. Right? Propaganda is always uh, deceptive, manipulative, um, biased, uh, oversimplified. Uh, it's mistreating people. It's disrespecting people when we use propaganda. Right? Two legs good, four legs bad. Propaganda. We have always been at war with East Asia. Right? George Orwell is the master of uh, sending up propaganda. Uh, I think he would have really loved the idea of the 140 character limit because that would have fit right in with his notion of good propaganda. Someone who was very fond of propaganda said this, people will believe anything provided they're told it often enough and emphatically enough and that contradictors are either silenced or smothered in calumny. That was Adolf Hitler and he and Goebbels uh, were early adopters of modern technology and filmmaking and things and radio uh, for propagandizing. But New Testament examples and instruction tell us we want nothing to do with propaganda as we think about the faith, that we're supposed to be open with people, respectful of people, uh, try to answer their questions as best we can, um, try to go read if we don't know the answers to their questions. We're supposed to prepare ourselves to try to give a good answer with love and respect and have nothing to do with manipulation and propaganda. And that's why when you see the response to the message, which is our second point, you see that uh, in verse 4, that when people became Christians, it says they were persuaded. They were persuaded. That's, we, probably, we don't use that kind of terminology very much, but it's probably very appropriate. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. And that's the way they're describing them becoming Christians. And then in verse 11, the Bereans, it says, uh, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if they were true, what they were saying was true. So there's kind of a submission in that. When you receive the word, you're acknowledging that it's true and then submitting yourself to it. Um, so it's a reasonable thing. It's not just reason, but it's reasonable when they became Christians. And then it says the Bereans searched the scriptures to see if the things they were being taught were true, which is very interesting. Right? Um, they're not being asked to have blind faith. They're being urged to think about what they're being told, to read up, study, see if this is true, learn on their own. Um, sermons mostly are for the moment and the people gathered, I think, but they also are a way that we learn and develop understanding of the scripture and grow in wisdom over time. And these people were doing that. This is not in any way an encouragement for snarky people to fact check sermons. All right. Just because you got a phone in your pocket with Google on it. Um, I have homiletical license and don't let the facts get in the way of a good illustration. So, you know, those of you and you know who you are, you don't need to be doing that. Um, 
But searching the scriptures to see if these things are true, that's fine. Right? It's not blind faith. Though. It's, not even, it's not implicit faith. It's not saying just trust us. We're the religious authorities and we know. It's saying, no, you, um, you need to be persuaded of these things as a Christian. You need to believe them. And some people don't, right? A lot of people rejected the message then and now. Because when you turn somebody's upside down world right side up, it's disorienting and unpleasant, right? You get used to being upside down. You get used to the world the way it is. And to disrupt the status quo is to turn the world upside down. And that's not okay, right? That's why the mob gathered to riot. They're turning the world upside down. There were people who were frustrated religiously. It says uh, some jealousy came in when, you know, your, your congregants are being drawn away to another church. I've heard people could become jealous in that situation. You know, um, that's a pretty natural response. And then when someone's upsetting the apple cart politically, that's unsettling too, right? Stock market doesn't like it when the political status quo is challenged, and most people don't like it. And so they had a, a riot and a mob I don't know, they, they apparently knew who to go get to start a riot in town. <laughs> like, let's go get the usual suspects and start the riot. You know, but it worked. And uh, I'm not much of a rioter, um, but it doesn't seem like the time when you're most self-aware as a human being or most reasonable when you're uh, in a riot and a mob, right? <laughs> you know, just my sense. But they jumped in and did that. And uh, that's kind of a warning for us that, you know, if you're going to represent the news about what Jesus has done, it's not always going to be welcome news. And you may not always be well treated because of it. We've got it pretty easy, I think, um, relative to some other Christians in the world. But still, and maybe increasingly, you know, uh, what we say is going to feel abrasive to people and uh, they're not going to take it well necessarily. So you got kind of two things. One, when you look at people's response, you see a lot of people were persuaded by this, it tells you that it's worth doing the work to think about how to give a good answer to your friends who's, uh, who have questions about the faith or who are new to it. Um, Paul had to come up with arguments to say, look, the Messiah had to suffer. And he was good at, good at that argument. I'm guessing that's not what most of your friends are stumbling over. I'm guessing that you should probably start with Christian sex ethics. If you're trying to give a good answer to your friends who aren't Christians, you know, if you're going to read up, read up on that, because that's where almost all the questions come from now, from what I can tell. But if you love people enough, you'll uh, do some reading on that, talk and listen to some good uh, sermons on it or talks or discussions and things. So you can learn and, and be able to give a generous and kind, persuasive answer to your friends. On one hand, you've got to be prepared to give an answer, but other hand, you've got to be prepared where there's pushback. Right. Uh, just don't. We're not free to change the message to make it appealing. Right? A friend of mine said we're in sales, not management. And so there's going to be pushback. And for you to believe uh, what our culture finds abrasive about the Christian faith is going to make you uh, unpleasant in people's eyes at times, too. And and that's OK. Right. Um, love and respect are still the order of the day for us. But don't be shocked by that. And. That's a cost you count when you jump into Jesus' mission is that, you know, the way people push back against him will carry over to you, too, uh, on some level. But don't you want that? Don't you want to be part of his mission, even if it costs you something, even if it means you have to 
read and learn and have uncomfortable conversations and um, even be uh, misunderstood and disliked, um, at least inconvenienced. You know, if you're going to be on Jesus' mission in the world, it's not going to make your life easier. But gosh, don't you want that? I mean, some of your students are just out of school and, you know, you see the world's broken, that it's corrosive and corrupting and... Uh, one approach to that would be to say, I'm going to try to avoid that as much as I can and insulate myself from it as much as I can and try to live an affluent and comfortable life and work my way around the brokenness of the world as best I can and have a religious faith that is a point of assurance and comfort for me, kind of on the side in my life. But I don't find that very inspiring or a very good way to live. Um, wouldn't it be better to be a part of what Jesus is doing to turn the world back right side up, to do like he did, run toward the pain instead of away from it, to engage yourself with people? It might mean you have different friends than you would expect to have. It might mean that you get in uh, more uncomfortable situations than you might have otherwise. It might mean that you take a different job in a different place than you would otherwise. Um, but to be a part of the movement that addresses what's really broken in the world and to be able to have that be the driving motivation in your life is pretty appealing when you're told otherwise that if you just jump through all the hoops and check off all the boxes and make good grades and do what you're supposed to, that you can be rich. Because that's a, that's a recipe for despair. Just ask somebody that's older than you. Others of you come to Tucson to retire, uh, to rest and play. And that's okay. <laughs> but if you jump in to Jesus' mission, uh, the rest and play uh, aren't going to kick in very hard because you're going to be part of the insurgency, the nonviolent, non-secret uh, resistance movement, the subversive movement. And you'll find yourself, I don't know, helping prisoners transition from prison back to the regular world and things and visiting people who are dead lonely all the time. And you know the kind of things you do when you start paying attention to what Jesus is doing in the world and you get conscripted to it. And that's a lot better uh, plan for retirement than just trying to be active because, I don't know, being active is a pretty, uh, let's say, truncated idea of what human beings can aspire to be and do, right? Active is good, but having a mission in life is pretty great. And uh, if you're going to be a part of Jesus' mission, it may not make your retirement as comfortable as it's going to be, but it may make your life have a point other than just being active. And that's good. That's what I want our church to be about. I mean, why start a new church if you're not going to jump in on Jesus' mission? Right? If you're just trying to create another store for religious goods and services for people, you know, it's just not worth the effort. Right? So uh, that's the point for me. Why we're studying the book of Acts, because in the book of Acts, you see God's people joining in Jesus' mission. I want that for us, too. Um, not just a place that's going to hold up a mirror to the culture so people will think we're cool. Uh, not just a place that gives only words of comfort and assurance to people, but a place that says, look, the world can be right side up. Your life can be right side up, but it's going to be traumatic. And uh, we'll walk with you through it. You walk with us through it. But that's what we want to be. A church that's part of the insurgency right? so that we live our lives and have our church to put on display the healing that Jesus is bringing to the world, but especially to speak about the hope we have in the message 
of Jesus coming to fix the world. So, who's with me? <laughs> All right, let's pray.